electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today, a supersized podcast with two great interviews. Richard Parsons weighs in on unrest after 11 straight days of protests in major American cities. We have to get to know each other and appreciate each other and not be afraid of each other. The former chairman of Time Warner, City, CBS, and the LA Clippers on the business world's road ahead. I don't think that this is a problem that money alone can solve. And legendary investor Stanley Druckenmiller on the surprising market rally and his investments, the bad and the good. I've done a lot of investing in my life. I've had some misses and I've had some huge wins. The best investment I've ever made in my life was the Harlem Children's Zone. And that organization's incoming CEO, Kwame Owusu-Kese. On top of just the the fear of, of, of death, there is economic insecurity, food insecurity, housing insecurity. Despite all of that, there's still a great sense of hope. That is the reason why the Harlem Children's Zone exists. It's Tuesday, June 9th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Our next guest says that diversity in the workplace is just one of the many issues that corporate America needs to tackle. Joining us right now to talk about that, and of course, media as well, is Dick Parsons. He is currently a senior advisor at Providence Equity Partners. That's a private equity firm that specializes in media, communications and information companies. And Dick, thank you for being with us. It's been far too long since we've gotten the chance to talk with you on air. How are you? Um, I'm reasonably well, Becky, and you, and the and the gang. Uh, I'm, we're doing okay. We're we're hanging in there. You know, Dick, I've, I've been thinking a lot about the roles that that you take on. I always kind of think of you as a statesman because you're somebody who came in to Time Warner and took over as chairman and CEO in 2002 after that disastrous um, merger with AOL. Then you took over as chairman at Citigroup in the midst of the financial crisis when that company was suffering so much. And then I think back to 2014 when you were the interim CEO at the L.A. Clippers and had to come in there after the owner, uh, Donald Sterling, was forced out of the NBA, banned for life after he was caught making some racist comments. So you are a guy who, who fixes and heals. And I just wonder, as you look at where our country is right now, where you look at businesses, how you would go about trying to fix and heal what you see happening. Well, that's a big question, Becky. Um, but it's probably really actually the right question. How do, we, how do we move forward? And I don't think we can move forward from where we are without some fixing and some healing. Um, you know, I, obviously, like everybody else in the country, I've been watching what's going on with a sense not only of, of sort of, of horror at the, uh, at the raw um, actions that are being taken, but it's a real sense of, of frustration and loss because this isn't the first time um, by any stretch of the imagination. I, you know, I'm a little older than uh, you and Joe, and, um, and uh, you know, I go back to 1968, which was the last time we had big riots in the country in the late 60s, and uh, President Johnson appointed somebody called uh, his Commission on Civil Unrest. 
commonly known as the Kerner Commission, and they reported on you know the causes of that unrest. And if you read through that report, it could have been written a week ago. Um, you know, things have changed, but but fundamental things haven't changed. We haven't really healed some really centuries-old wounds and dealt with them in a way that you could then pile on top effective, you know, remedial action so that we don't stumble over this rock again in another 50 years. So what would I do? Well, that's, 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 a, that's a huge question. But I think you have to start with, you know, kind of acknowledging the underlying causes of, of these kinds of flare-ups, which, frankly, and, and it pains me to say it, but frankly, finds its root in, in racism and deal with that as opposed to putting Band-Aids on top of it. Really get down to, um, you know, how people think and feel about each other. Because how people think and feel about each other infuses all of our institutions and our actions. That's what, that's, that's the firmament in which those institutions and actions are born and, 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 and they reflect uh, those feelings and those cultural biases. And we just have to get, get after that in order to really make permanent change. I don't know how to go about changing how people feel, how they feel about each other, um, other than trying to get to know each other a little bit better. Uh, we, we have heard a lot of business leaders who have stepped up this week and, and said that they're going to be addressing this, but not just a given talk. A lot of them have also donated money, and in some cases some pretty large amounts, to try and get after some of the effects of that underlying issue. Um, trying to make sure that there's better access to health care, trying to make sure that there's better access to finance so that you can start your own business, so that you can get a loan to, to uh, buy a house, something along those lines. What, what, what do you think business leaders should be doing here, Dick? Well, let's start with um, the notion that, that all of that is good. Obviously, you know, providing, trying to level the playing field by providing better health care, better housing, better education is good. And, you know, it, it, it has, it bears results. I'll put it that way. Um, you know, I don't think if it hadn't been for much of the stuff that was done after the Kerner Commission in 68, that was done in the early 70s, I don't think I would have made it as far as I made it. But um, I, I think that there's a part of this problem, and I, I would call it a, a, a seminal, a fundamental part of the problem, that can't be solved with just money. And, you know, while business businesses are, are shaping up, you know, uh, I do a little diversion. You remember when I was running Time Warner, I got in trouble a couple of times for suggesting that a CEO's responsibility goes beyond simply uh, uh, considering it turning to shareholders. But my investors said, no, that's not right. No, your job is to maximize value for shareholders, period, full stop. I think more and more and more um, corporate America is realizing that uh, big companies and small, but particularly the big companies, you know, you've got several constituents. You've got your shareholders, to be sure, but you also have your employees and you have your community. And what you're seeing now is a lot more companies are sort of steering their boat into the, the headwinds of dealing with employees as a constituency and community. And that's good. But 
is that going to really be transformational in terms of solving a problem that's been with this country for for centuries? I think not. I think uh, you actually you actually gave the read the headline a minute ago. You know, we, we have to get to know each other and appreciate each other and not be afraid of each other going forward or you know, or our society will still be founded on notions that arise out of out of the sense of inequality between the two races and um, and all the money in the world I don't think is gonna change that. It's certainly not gonna change it in your or my lifetime. Hey, Dick, I, I remember in 2014 when you were serving as the interim CEO to the L.A. Clippers, <clears throat> you joined us on Squawk uh, and you came on set with us and we were talking a little bit about it. And for those who don't remember, it was Donald Sterling made some incredibly racist comments um, in, in tapes to his girlfriend at the time, saying things like she shouldn't be hanging out with African-Americans or black people. She shouldn't be uh, making social media posts with them. She shouldn't be bringing Magic Johnson to the L.A. Clippers games. Somehow that video got out. And I remember talking to you at the time because there was debate just six years ago about whether he should be banned from the NBA, whether he should be forced to sell the Clippers. And I remember the comment you made at the time was you said that the line had changed and was moving very rapidly. And here we are six years later, a long time later. I just wonder where the line is now, how rapidly this is changing, and either how tired you are of waiting for this or how optimistic you are about where we might be headed as a society? Well, it's a good question because this is, you know, for sure a dynamic process. I, I think at some levels, at, at, at surface levels, the line has changed um, a lot. People are, uh, you know, African Americans are now virtually everywhere you can find folks. They may not be there in proportionate numbers, but they're in the halls of Congress. They're uh, running, you know, large uh, parts of the American economy in, in terms of being CEOs of big businesses. They're police chiefs. They're mayors. They're all sorts of things, but um, not enough and not fast enough. Um, and as I said, there's still you know huge swaths of the African American community that uh, their circumstances are no different than they were, as I said, in 1968, the last time we as a country really sort of resolved to look at this issue and try and do something with it. So while there's movement, it's not fast enough, and, and um, I don't think it's profound enough. Let me, let me just read you something, because you're, you're a youngster, and you may not have remembered. I don't think you may have even arrive on this current commission uh, issued its report, but after doing, you know, a thoroughgoing study of what led to riots in Detroit and Newark and around the country, the commission concluded, and I'm, I'm quoting now, that unrest was a product of a wide range of racial and economic injustices, ranging from inadequate schools and housing to poverty, wage jobs, poverty, poverty wage jobs, and discriminatory treatment from police and the criminal justice system. Um, as I said, that, that could have been written two weeks ago. Uh, so that while there has been change and the door has opened somewhat for African Americans to achieve, it hasn't been opened nearly wide enough or fast enough. 
Dick, Dick, it's Joe Carter. That's that's a point Professor uh, West, Cornell West, made that that um, that I thought was was appropriate. Some, someone said, you know, that you look at the black middle class, you look at all the uh, all the gains that have been made in in corporations, and you see, you know, we had a, a black president that was that was reelected. He said, fine, that, that's all great, but th- there's still unequal opportunity for a vast number of of uh, black children in, in urban areas, and that's, it's a glacial move sort of to try to improve that. So my, my question to you is, we had Bob Johnson on, Robert Johnson of, of BET. He was yep. talking about actual reparations of $14 trillion, and we had Jeff Canada on last week. And I'm just wondering, I mean, it would still take a while, but you could go big and scalable on, on what they've done with, with Harlem uh, Children's Zone or maybe Opportunity Zones. Or you go even more shock and awe with, with what Bob Johnson is talking about. What would you think is feasible? What do you think would, would work? It, it, what would be more effective? Hey, Joe, how are you? I'm I, great. It's good to hear from you. Uh, have you on today, Dave? As I said, and I, you know, I don't want to plunge necessarily this conversation into immediate controversy, but I don't think that this is a problem that money alone can solve. Right. Uh, even if you go big. I mean, the government went big. We spent billions on the Great Society, and, uh, and there was a result, of course, but it wasn't, it wasn't what one might think if you had spent that kind of money to solve this problem. You know, Becky said something earlier that, that <laughs> it sounds simple, but it's at the essence of the solution, I think. He said, well, you know, unless we get to know each other better. You know, I, I once worked pretty close with a guy named Jack Kemp, who I know you knew, Joe. Mm-hmm. Jack was a Republican congressman from the state of New York. He was also a former uh, all-pro uh, NFL football player, the quarterback. And he was on the board of Howard University with me. And we had a conversation one day, he and Vernon Jordan and myself, about, you know, his commitment to the cause. And he said, you know, I didn't, I didn't grow up with, with, when I was a youngster with uh, black Americans. He said, but I played with them. And what I learned was, you know, when I got to know them, they, they're no different than me, really. I mean, they wanted the same things for their families, for themselves, laughed at the same jokes. And I, I formed many good friends in the black community because of, of that association with them. I got to know them. And the fear that, that most white Americans had in the back of their minds about blacks um, went away. And so... You know, I think we have to figure out some way to introduce ourselves to each other. I'll put it that way. Um, instead of sensitivity training, we ought to have get-to-know-me training or get-to-know-each-other training, where, where you know, the beliefs that are locked in the back of people's minds that are cultural and that, as I say, infuse every part of this society because you know, those things come out of those things. Somehow we have to get at that. And it's not just a matter of throwing more money into programs um, to elevate blacks. Now, that's going to be necessary at the end of the day anyway. I mean, you know, you've got to educate people. Uh, you've got to give them decent housing and decent health care. But that's not going to be enough. So, you know, I, I read about Bob. Bob's an interesting guy and a smart guy. I don't know that, that simply handing over $14 trillion 
to a group of people and saying, here now, um, you know, almost like a tort case. You're now uh, equal or, you know, your, your injury has been paid for. Go forth and multiply. I don't think that's an answer. Um, and I, I think that business in particular can't possibly put up the kind of resources that uh, the government can that's going to be needed to really level the playing field. Um, but I think we need to do more than just try and buy our way out of this. Now, having said that, don't get me wrong, um, the efforts that lots of corporations are now making to really look after their communities are good and, and, and commendable. I'm just suggesting they're not the full answer. The question I would ask you, and, and by the way, I think you're 100% right, which is you have to get people together and you got to get them together early. And I think Ken Frazier, who was on our broadcast last week and talked about being bussed, frankly, 90 minutes every single morning uh, to a school all the way across town and, and not only helped him get a great education, but created a different type of network for him. And he talked about that. Um, the question I was going to ask you, though, is from a, at, at a business level, whether you think that companies which put out these targets uh, in terms of uh, diversity on boards, diversity in management, um, what needs to happen there? And you're seeing companies like Goldman Sachs say we're not going to take a company public unless they have two diverse board members. You're seeing states like California actually put it into law and say if you're a publicly traded company based in this, in, in this state, we want you to have X number of people. That was based on gender. I mean, do you think we have to do this in a more systematic, if not regulated way? Well, I, you know, you use the term that for a business guy, sends up a red, red flag, regulated way. I, I wouldn't be for that. In a more systematic way, in a more intentional way, yes, it is good to have, you know, I've served on any number of boards, and it's good to have diverse perspectives and voices around the board table. But essentially, when you're a director of a, of a company, you have you know various fiduciary duties which are defined, you know, uh, not only by law but in the common law and, and, and in common sense, to the owners of the company as well as to the employees as well as to the community. That means that you can't sort of say, well, you know, we used to make shoes, but now we ought to do something else to help uh, move the needle in terms of the diversity perspective. In other words, I'm not saying it very articulately, but you're, you're, you're a diverse voice in a predetermined set of objectives and system. Um, so that while it's good, again, it's not, it's not the whole answer. And I think what you're going to see, you're going to see more, more corp companies um, intentionally, with intention, uh, diversify both their boards and their senior management. But is, is that going to make a transformational difference? I don't think so. Hey, Dick, it occurs to me that um, this is all happening at a pretty inopportune time just from the economic perspective. Um, it is far harder to, to lift all boats in an economic crisis, and that's certainly what we're facing this uh, right now. Even though the markets come back, you are talking about uh, companies that are not going to have the revenue that they had anticipated for this year. You are talking about companies that are talking about laying off en masse to try and make up for that. Uh, pay cuts that have come in other places. 
So trying to make this happen under that backdrop is much more difficult. We did see that the, um, the unemployment rate for the month of May was below what people had been anticipating. That's what we learned on Friday. But within that, in the African-American community, it did tick slightly higher. So how, how do you make it happen with the added complication of that backdrop? You know, that, that's, a, that's a $64 question. Uh, or $64,000 question. Um, I think that, you know, you, you just point to sort of real-world constraints. Uh, um, we had a board meeting at Estee Lauder yesterday where I'm on the board, where, and they've come up with a very thoughtful approach to making sure that they do an even better job. That's a company that happens to do a pretty good job on the diversity front, not just African-American, but, you know, women in particular, uh, gays, LBGT, I mean, the, the sweep of, um, of, our, of our society, actually. But the reality is because of the impact of the COVID pandemic on their business, uh, prior to considering this issue, the company had put in a hiring freeze. No new hires, you know, between now and the end of the year. Um, and so how do you, how do you, uh, how do you deal with Trying to balance up your, uh, your your employment scale, and when you have a hiring freeze, not hiring anybody, I think a lot of companies are going to have to face that, and I think it will it will moderate or slow down the progress of which we're going to see um, a lot of American companies at least moving towards a more diverse face to the public and internal management structure in terms of, of minorities. It's, uh, you know, it's going to be a challenge. But I think what, what, um, what will help is there's going to be more transparency. You know, there's more, more CEOs and more senior corporate managers are going to be talking about what the intention is. They're going to be marking where they are now, and they're going to be explaining to their employee base and their other constituents, including their shareholders, what, what the game plan is going forward so that people can at least mark progress and understand through transparency what's going on. That'll help. Dick, I want to thank you for being with us today. It's really good to talk to you. It's been far too long, and we appreciate your thoughtfulness on this uh, incredibly difficult topic. Well, thank you, and Andrew and Joe, nice to talk to all of you. Um, hopefully we can do it again soon sometime. I hope so, too. Thank you. Next on Squawk Pod, the Harlem Children's Zone, working with communities and well-known investors to disrupt the systemic barriers to opportunity. With corporations and those that are being able to benefit from, from the uptick that is happening in the markets, um, the question becomes, um, how are we reinvesting um, those profits back into the communities on the community level um, to ensure that we are unlocking the great potential that exists um, in communities of color all across the nation? We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. 
Last week on the pod, we brought you an extended interview with Jeffrey Canada, activist and president of the Harlem Children's Zone in New York. You can still find that episode on your feed from June 2nd if you missed it. Harlem Children's Zone provides cradle-to-career support and infrastructure investment in poor communities. It started in Harlem, but its ambitions extend far beyond NYC. I think it's time for a massive community infrastructure investment in this country. This is more than just schools. We've got to rebuild a health system, the mental health systems. We've got to help with housing uh, and make sure that the parks and the playgrounds are are safe places for our kids and families to go. Uh, I've spent my life doing this at the Harlem Children's Zone. Uh, We see a movement around this country. For Jeffrey Canada and for everyone who works with HCZ, support for poor American communities is about breaking the cycle of racial, economic, and opportunity inequality in this country. One of Canada's decades-long partners on this project is one of the guests you'll hear next, legendary investor Stanley Druckenmiller. As you'll hear, Jeff helped shape Stan's philanthropy and also his life. Chances are you know Stanley Druckenmiller as a billionaire hedge funder or maybe as a former manager for another legendary investor, George Soros. Today, he's joined by incoming CEO of Harlem Children's Zone, Kwame Obusu-Kese. Here's Joe Kernan. The Harlem Children's Zone has been investing in education and support for children of New York City for many, many years. Stan Druckenmiller has been investing in Harlem Children's Zone since almost the beginning. Now the initiative is hoping to expand what it's learned in New York across the country. Joining us is Stan Druckenmiller, CEO of the Duquesne Family Office, chairman of the board of Harlem's Children's Zone, and Kwame Owusu-Kesi, incoming CEO of the Harlem Children's Zone, I think in July, uh, Kwame. So, uh, you know, if, if, if you're having doubts, you're getting close. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think you're it's going to be great. You're going to go through with it. Stan, you're chairman of the board still. We had Jeff on last week, Jeff Kenna, for an extended interview. And, and I think we got a pretty good idea, not everyone does, of exactly what happens there. Uh, can you summarize again for maybe people that didn't see that interview? But it's not just schools. Uh, it, it's almost a cradle to the job um, all-encompassing holistic approach, even fixing dilapidated buildings, fixing parks, childcare, parent programs. It's, it's a lot of, it's holistic. Could you go into that a little bit, please? The mission of the, the Harlem Children's Zone is breaking the intergenerational cycle of poverty, um, where we are building up opportunities for children, for families, and for the community uh, so that they can thrive in, in school, in, in, in life, and, and at home. So, one of the common misperceptions about the work that we do at the Harlem Children's Zone is that we're just a charter school. And while we have two excellent K-12 um, charter schools, there's a whole host of wraparound services um, that we provide for all of the stages of development from birth through college. So in, in essence, it is a comprehensive set of services um, where we are building up pathways and building up opportunities um, for folks for mobility and prosperity. Stan, you were one of the early investors, and as you have pointed out, when you invested, you, you took big positions with, with a lot of impact in, in those positions. It used to be philanthropy was like the arts or hospitals, but now you were early, but you think the time is right for this type of, of philanthropy. It's expensive, it, it, it's detail-oriented, but you, you can actually see results because there's no you know, magic bullet for a lot of these, uh, these intractable problems. Exactly. Joe, this, um, this started way back in the early 90s when I met Jeff Canada. And I worked with him on the board of Reedland Center for Children and Families. And spending four or five years with him, 
up there in Harlem, I could see that the American dream that I was living just was not possible for hundreds of thousands of kids, um, and specifically tens of thousands in central Harlem. But across the nation, I was learning what these kind of situations were. I grew up in this country, loving this country, believing the story, if you pull up your bootstraps, anybody can succeed. And I had the background where that, where that was enabled and I was able to succeed. But looking at central Harlem 25 years ago, it was such a toxic, toxic environment that had been marred by disinvestment in education, health, infrastructure. Everywhere you walked, there were dilapidated buildings. It didn't look safe for the kids. And when Jeff came to me and proposed, and I had already known for four years, the Harlem Children's Zone, to try and level the playing field and make that neighborhood similar to the middle-class neighborhoods across this country where children would have the opportunity to succeed. Not a guarantee for success, but just a shot, a shot at the American dream. Um, I was all in. I was all in, A, because you had Jeff Cano on last week. I had known him for four years. I believed at the time he was the most extraordinary leader I had ever met. I still believe that. And in my business career, I liked making big bets and particularly on great managements. And this was a massive, massive investment that I knew there was a lot of risk to it. But basically, if Jeff Canada told me to jump off the Brooklyn Bridge with him, I probably would have done it. So when he proposed this idea, where I was already just sort of sickened by what I saw that this neighborhood, which by the way, was almost all black and brown children, just wasn't giving kids the opportunity to succeed that I had had. So um, we made the bet together and um, Jeff delivered um, over and over again. He, Harlem Children's Zone has been a huge success. Um, one of the things they've done that is, that is most interesting to me is Jeff was succeeded by another great leader, Ann Williams Ison. The transition was as smooth as I had ever seen in any corporate situation. Uh, Ann did a phenomenal job. So we've had two great African-American leaders. And as you mentioned, Kwame is set to take over July 1st. So we will have had three generations of African-American leading the Harlem Children's Zone, which if you look at the results is probably the most successful intervention in, in place-based work in this country. And we want it to be scalable, and that's the question here. And Kwame, you, you uh, I'm going to quote you here, the national collective consciousness is primed to act right now. It's time to act. This is, this is when um, you know, consciousness has been raised to the point where it's not going to be, let's go back to normal. How is that going to be part of your mission? And, and it's, it has moved to more than just Harlem, this, this whole concept. But it'd be a huge undertaking to do it in every neighborhood uh, that, that needs it, and it's very expensive. So is that you're a young guy? Uh, you're, you, had, you had some time on Wall Street, then got an MBA from Harvard. I mean, you're, you probably the guy to do it. But is it going to be focused just where you are now, or is, are we going to take this scalable? So the Harlem Children's Zone and the model that we're, we're doing here in Central Harlem is absolutely scalable. scalable. Um, it has always been a part of our mission uh, to be an example and, and, and holding the standard of excellence of what it takes to do this work on the ground and be able to share them um, with poor communities all across the, the nation. And as you had mentioned, the time to act is now. And we exist as an entity um, for what we're seeing that is playing out 
daily in the news, um, the, the daily reminders of um, the systemic inequality, uh, the injustices, and that's causing a lot of mixed emotions on the ground with, with the folks that we serve, right? There, there's anger, uh, there is sadness, and not only just because of the, the social justice environment, but this is all on the backdrop of, of a pandemic that is devastating our community, and where, where black people are 3.6 times more likely to die than their white counterparts. Um, on top of just the, the fear of, of, of death, there is economic insecurity, food insecurity, housing insecurity, um, all on, again, um, on the backdrop of an impending mental health crisis that's going to cause, uh, continue to cause devastation within the communities. Um, yet, despite all of that, there's still a great sense of hope, uh, a, a great sense of a fighting spirit uh, amongst our, our community. That is the reason why I've dedicated my life to this work. That is the reason why the Harlem Children's Zone exists. And we believe as we continue to, to codify best practices, as Stan mentioned, we have a generation of evidence about what works on the ground. So when you think about the, the 7,000 parents that have graduated through our baby college, the, the 2,000 four-year-olds that continue to, to graduate and, and enter kindergarten school ready, the elimination of the black-white achievement gap at our charter schools, uh, the two K through 12 charter schools, the 950 students that we have on college, uh, in addition to all of the wraparound services, we have a Healthy Harlem initiative where we're dedicated to eradicating childhood obesity, and, and we're seeing um, the rates of obesity diminish given the efforts that we have there. Um, so again, this, the, the comprehensive set of services that we offer, the evidence base that we have, that we know that works, um, we are being able to continue to share that with practitioners all across the field. Um, since the early 2000s, we've had over 500 communities come and visit us here at the Harlem Children's Zone across the United States, 70-plus different countries. So everybody understands that it's going to take comprehensive set of services at the neighborhood level where we hold each other accountable for real outcomes. And I absolutely believe our model here is scalable. But both of you gentlemen are, are emphasize the private sector in, in doing a public private sector. And that's what I want you to try to, fit, to, to explain to me, Stan, because it's not I, it almost sounds like you want government funds, but you want private sector oversight to, to make sure that it's done properly or something. Can you can you explain what, what you're talking about there? Yeah, I'd also say, Joe, I'm incredibly optimistic. This this model is scalable and I'm about as hopeful as I've ever been. Twenty percent of philanthropy goes into the social sector. That was almost zero 20 or 30 years ago, and it needs to go north. And only 4% of leaders in philanthropy are, are black and Latino. But I've been around the country and I've met tremendous social leaders and, and I think they're there to deliver on this model. With, with regard to the private sector, Harlem Children Known is pretty much a 20 year trial and error experiment. Um, what we did was we just kept trying things um, basically for 20 years. And Jeff was a data geek and a data hound from day one. And we had data to see what worked and what didn't work. So basically now, 20 years later, we know what works. And we also know not what to do. And we want to share that with the country. But that, that 20 years involved tremendous innovation and a, and a lot of projects that now we want to share with others. Um, I don't think a public, the, the government could have done this the way we did. We, we held our leaders to, to make them accountable. They delivered, and now we have this model. But with regard to your question, I think the end game is 
you get places like the Harlem Children's Zone, show that kids in Harlem, Central Harlem can succeed, show that you can eliminate the opportunity gap, the achievement gap, and then once they have proven success, government comes in and, and helps fund these organizations over the long term. And again, I'm incredibly optimistic. We did it in the toughest neighborhood in, in, in the country. There are leaders all around this country I met. By the way, one great one is Sandra Samuels in North Minneapolis, but there's many, many around the country. And I'm incredibly optimistic that we can pull this off and it'll change the direction of what's really been a, a stain on our nation. Hey, hey Stan and Kwame, I, I applaud you both. And, and just to follow up on, on Joe's question uh, to some degree in terms of the scalability of it all, and, and I pray that we can, we can get it to be scalable, and clearly the results speak for themselves. The question that I would ask is how you think you persuade, frankly, all of the teachers' unions uh, around the country that this is the right answer. This may very well be the right answer for kids, but do we need to do you ultimately need to partner with with teachers and partner with the with the teachers unions, which, of course, have had uh, lots of uh, questions, at least uh, if and I'm being politic about it, I mean, at least the way they've approached it in terms of their view of charter schools? Kwame, maybe you can answer that one. Let me let me just say, Andrew, that even though we run two very successful charter schools, we are involved with interventions helping out the public schools in Harlem. But I think. Um, Kwame, who deals with the teachers' unions on a day-to-day -day basis, is better served to answer that question. Sure. As, as Stan articulated, um, less than 20 percent of the students that we serve at the Harlem Children's Zone actually attend our, our charter school. The lion's share of the 14,000 um, young people that we serve year in and year out attend traditional public school. Um, so for us, it's not a question about charter school versus traditional public school. It's about quality education. And we believe that we, in many ways, can serve as like R&D for the field. Uh, we have a great set of educators who have dedicated their lives to this work. Um, we have the ability, as Stan articulated, to be innovative in our practices. And we have a responsibility to, to share those um, with those who are concerned and, and care about our children and quality education. And I know that feeling um, and, and that commitment to our young people is widespread all across the nation. Stan, while we have you here, I just want to get a, a, a quick market comment from you uh, on what we've seen. You, you had your speech at the, uh, at the Economics Club. Uh, at that point, you looked around the world and, um, you know, stocks had moved quite a bit by then. And it may have looked rich or it may have looked like there was a lot of uh, things we, we couldn't foresee. Uh, it, it's moved quite a bit since then. Um, are you more concerned now and comment on the Fed and the Fed's action as well? Just where what, what in the last three weeks, what have you witnessed, would you say? Well, I've been humbled many times in my career, uh, and I'm sure I'll be humbled many times in the future. And the last three weeks certainly fits that category. Um, so I had long term concerns for the last few years that uh, because of easy money, too much debt was being built up in the corporate sector. Um, when COVID hit, I was pretty much of the view that there was a good chance that the bubble had finally, the credit bubble had finally burst and the underlining, the unwinding of that leverage could take years. Um, I'm still of that view over the long term, but next week I turned 67 and um, if I have a view five years out, that's all, that's all fine and dandy, but I'm not even sure I'll be alive. So let's talk about 
the intermediate term. I did give a talk at the economics club and I, I talked about how horrible I thought the risk reward was. Um, I would say that since that time, a couple of things have happened technically, which is part of my process. And I would also say I underestimated how, how many red lines and how far the Fed would go. But the great Marty Zweig, who I learned a lot from in technical analysis, had this thing called a breadth thrust. And early last week, um, the advanced decline on the New York Stock Exchange was over two to one for a 10-day period. That is an undefeated record on an intermediate basis. And, and what is clearly happening is the excitement of pre-opening is, is allowing a lot of these companies that have been casualties of COVID um, to come back and come back in force with a combination of hopes with the Fed money uh, and in particular a vaccine where the news has been very, very good since that economics club. And I think probably more important than the market here is, is that breath expansion and the fact that the rotation out of the COVID winners into the COVID leaders gives you a big, big breath expansion because frankly, there are a very limited number of large cap, but very large cap companies that benefit from COVID. And there are hundreds of companies that get hurt by COVID. So that's why, say, the first 35% of the rally was led by the growth stocks. And now it's being led by, obviously, the last few weeks, the value stocks. Let me just say, you got to have an open mind. The health situation is ever evolving. Um, I don't think anyone, particularly me, knows how it's going to end up. Um, personally, I have still something like Amazon and Microsoft are my largest holdings, but I have the least growth weighting in my portfolio I've had maybe for six or seven years. Um, I don't want your viewers to get too excited about that because as some of your commentators have pointed out correctly, I could change my mind in a week or two. This is very binary how this comes out on the health front. But I just think it's a fascinating time where if you get a vaccine, say by January, February, you get one distinct outcome within the market. And if you don't get a vaccine for a year or two, you get another distinct outcome within the market. Then you've got all the stimulus plans. If they deliver in July, you get one outcome. If they don't, liquidity falls off a cliff and you get another outcome. So as always, I'm staying flexible. Um, but I've been far too cautious. I was, I was up 2% the day of the bottom, and I've made all of 3% in the 40% rally, and I missed a great opportunity here. Won't be the last time, but um, those are my current thoughts, Joe. Kwame, uh, you know, you were at Morgan Stanley. I, I see you kind of, you're not on camera the entire time Stan was talking. I don't, you're, you're kind of smart. I guess you've got your own opinions on, on what happened, but Stan's the best ever, probably. And, and uh, I think we want him to do well, just for, for CHC uh, as well, right? Um, Absolutely. Um, and it's interesting because as, as I've been following the, the economy and uh, even with the, the recent release of, of the unemployment rates and surprisingly going down for most of America, um, what, what challenges me and in, in the work that we do is uh, it didn't go down for, for black Americans. It was actually slightly up um, at 16.8%. Um, so just the economic impact that COVID is having in the communities that we serve um, is, is taking a devastating toll. So with um, corporations and those that are being able to benefit for, from the uptick that is happening in the markets, um, the question becomes, 
um, how are we reinvesting um, those profits back into the communities on the community level um, to ensure that we are unlocking the great potential that exists um, in communities of color all across the nation. Joe, Joe, can I just say one thing? Of course. I've done a lot of investing in my life. I've had some misses, uh, as I just pointed out, and I've had some huge wins. The best investment I've ever made in my life was the Harlem Children's Zone. Uh, it's been a huge success. I've gotten great satisfaction in it, and I, I encourage others to experience the joy I've, I've experienced by investing in the Harlem Children's Zone and, yeah. and other communities uh, where economic mobility needs to move and change our nation. And I know when, when you say you go big on investments, you went, I don't know if, we don't need to talk about numbers, but you went big, big, big in, 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 uh, in this investment, and it, uh, it's paid off. And, and Kwame, I, you know, we were talking before the show uh, on Twitter. I, I said I'd get you some more followers, so uh, <laughs> at Kwame OK, at Kwame OK, I'm going to follow everything that you're doing, and we wish you, I think you're the perfect guy for this, Dan. You're right, superstar. Um, and and it's I just hope we can do it everywhere. I mean, it, I don't know. You know, we, it, it, instead of reparations, I think Bob Johnson was looking for 14 trillion. You guys probably wouldn't need quite that much to to really make a huge difference, I think, across the country, because I'm not sure that that Bob that's going to work out necessarily that way. Would 14 trillion do it, Stan? Well, I mean, he's my third superstar in a row, and I cannot wait to see his action in the next 10 years. All I right, can't keep wait. Us, keep us updated. Kwame, William, I'm going to be following you, as Absolutely. I said. Absolutely. I okay. appreciate it. Thank you, gentlemen. We appreciate it. Okay. Thank you, Joe. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thanks, Stan. Thanks, Thank Chuck. you. Kwame. More Squawk Pod after this. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. That's the podcast for today. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern and subscribe to Squawk Pod on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. Tweet us thoughts, comments at Squawk CNBC, and we'll meet you back here tomorrow. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right. 
a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.